Kora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Kia ora, I'm Ben Abram, the British High Commission's Climate Change and COP26 advisor. It's great to be here today hosting my first Tea with the High Commission podcast and to be joined by our guest, Helen Bloom. Helen is a Principal Analyst at the Ministry for the Environment and has represented New Zealand in almost every single climate negotiation over the last 30 years. Across successive governments, she's travelled the globe from Montreal to, to Marrakesh, working, with the, working through the night and on some of the thorniest issues of our time. For her services, Helen was made a Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2020. With just two weeks to go until the UK hosts the next UN Climate Change Conference, COP26 in Glasgow, we're pulling back the curtain at what really goes on at these global summits, and I can think of no one better to do this with than Helen. So I've got my cup of tea here, and we're ready to go. Um, as a first kind of question, I think you know we often talk a lot about COP26. It's going to be in the media a lot. Um, you know, some people will be heralding it as one of the best last chances to get us on track to tackling climate change. But not that many people really know what goes on at these conferences, other than the, the few delegates who, who are there. Could you start by perhaps painting a mental picture for our audience about what does a COP look like? If one of our listeners was to turn up for the first time, what would they expect to see? Well, they'd probably see something resembling a six-ring circus. And, and I say that because there are, um, there are five meetings that are happening in parallel. It's not just the COP. There's the, the meeting, which is the meeting of the parties under the Framework Convention. Mm. There's the meeting of the parties under the Kyoto Protocol, the meeting of the parties under the Paris Agreement, the two subsidiary bodies that support those negotiations, the subsidiary body for implementation, mm -hmm. the subsidiary body for scientific and technological advice. So that takes care of five, five of the rings of the circus. And the sixth one is the parallel process of that is for um, where there are workshops and um, displays, exhibitions, talks, mm -hmm. discussions that are run um, by primarily by non-governmental organisations, but often with input from governments as well. So mm. that that sort of is is the the six six rings of the circus. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you've described it well. I remember turning up to some my, my first one, which was in, in Paris, and just sort of seeing the um, all the kind of flags out the front of all the different countries, and kind of just these sort of imposing <laughs> buildings behind them, and. I think I got plenty of exercise just just w walking between them. It can be quite far um, between you know, all the different rooms and things, right? And um, are there any thinking of the different cops and summits that you've attended? Are there any venues that were particularly interesting or, or stand out in your mind as um, as a sight to behold? The Warsaw cop was held in a football stadium. Oh wow! The um, Paris cop that you've just mentioned was at a um, disused airport. Um, what else? The, oh, well, what stands out, I, I guess, um, in terms of distance between rooms mm. is the um, Doha meeting where the conference centre was so vast 
and it took so long to get from one side of the the complex to another to get from one meeting to another when there was actually no time so that that was um, sort of a bit of a standout but I, I think in recent times the most standout one has been Madrid mm. because it was set up so quickly and mm. Spain came to the rescue at the last hour and managed to establish a fantastic conference centre mm. that that um, functioned incredibly well and they did it with in, in four and a half weeks or something okay. like that. It was just amazing. Uh, at COP26, there will be two main spaces. There will be the, the Blue Zone, which is managed by the United Nations for accredited delegates, and it's where their negotiations and official side events take place. And there's also the Green Zone, which is managed by the UK government and will be open to the public with a raft of additional exhibitions, workshops and talks. And I just wanted to focus on sort of the Blue Zone, and you touched on it before in describing all the different kind of workshops organized by different groups and organizations. Um, but can you describe sort of who goes to a COP? What kind of people are accredited delegates and what do they go there to try and achieve? Well, for, for the, the sort of negotiations part of, of the, the meeting, um, most of the people that are accredited by governments are, um, they work for the government, mm. they're there to represent their government or their country, but some some um, some countries include non-government people in their mm. delegations. So there's there's quite often a mixture in mm. the sort of formal delegation, mm. but often those um, non-government people are there not so much for the the negotiations themselves, although that is of interest. They are often there because of the the parallel. Um, side event mm. program um, which I'm, I'm always quite jealous that I never have time to, to <laughs> take part in, in these other things and go and see what's going on and even in times where where I've been booked mm. in to chair a, a workshop or whatever um, I've I think 100% of the time have had to st and I always accept on the basis that the negotiations have to take priority and I think in, on every single occasion I've had to send a, an email to the organisers mm. saying, I'm, I'm very sorry, you'll have to bring plan B into play, I won't be able to do it. So f for, for government people, what, what um, they're often there for one particular agenda item that they will be following, mm. um, that, that is um, for, for countries that have larger delegations, um, for smaller delegations they, they will choose which is what priority they they give and, and will um, go to a, a subset of, of what's available. Um, the, the actual process itself tries not to schedule too many things mm. happening at the same time and there are rules about that but there are things sort of drop below the radar at some mm. point and there are often very, very informal discussions that are going on that, that are trying to hammer out um, agreements, yeah. compromises, whatever. Yeah. Exactly, and um, yeah, I want to pick up on that point about exactly that, ha hammering out sort of agreements and, and documents, um, because while many people have heard of the Paris Agreement, uh, and now efforts are underway to finalise the Paris rulebook, um, 
it'd be great to talk a little bit about what those sort of are and, and how they how they happen. So, you know, these are documents that are written and agreed upon by delegates through the COP process. Um, so at this, you know, these, this venue with all these delegates representing different countries, how do they go about writing or producing one of these um, agreements or documents? Is it just everyone sits around the computer together or how does it happen on the day? If, if you sort of roll things back to, mm. to a starting point and, and where we are in the nego- negotiations at the moment is, is almost at the finish line, so we're, we're not at the starting point mm. anymore. But at the starting point, the um, the chair of, of the body might request submissions from parties on the, the, the work that has been given to that body to complete. Governments will then write submissions in that, that it include what they would like to see in terms of the, the rules that govern Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And that ideally would then be all, the, all those submissions will be taken together and synthesised into a document that could form the starting point for a, a serious discussion. Mm. And... Um, so it, it's sort of like that, and then it will get refined and refined, and more ideas will come mm. into play, and, and options will go in. I don't know if you've heard of square brackets, yeah. but square brackets to represent areas of serious disagreement, and, and until the whole thing is agreed, there's always a giant square bracket at the beginning yeah. of a, a, a document, and, and one at the end, and then there'll be multiple square mm. brackets in between. Um, so that that is... The, the starting point and then how, how do we get to, to the end point and quite often it is by using um, <coughs> intercessional work mm. workshops and the like or even further submissions on particular areas these sorts of things there will be issues that are of interest to um, think tanks and the like and they will often convene workshops mm. or expert meetings on particular things that are live issues within the negotiation to try and bring viewpoints together and figure out where the middle ground might lie. So there's all these things that are going on and then the parties will meet um, you know, every six months um, normally in, in the, the calendar year and try and make progress on what it is that they've been asked to to do, yeah. and um, eventually, <laughs> through a process of horse training yep. and and other things, uh, an agreement will be reached, mm. and everybody walks away either happy or equally unhappy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as can often be the case. And so you've got these documents, all these different sort of options and texts proposed by different countries, and slowly getting to a convergence. And this process that we've sort of begun to describe, does it tend to run pretty smoothly into schedule? No. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not to schedule. And we're late with the the Article 6 Mm. um, rule book. Do you want to briefly describe sort of just in general terms what Article 6 was about since we've mentioned it? It's about carbon markets and how countries will... um, help each other meet their targets mm-hmm. through the, the trading of, of 
what we used to call under the Kyoto Protocol sort of emission reduction units yeah. or the like. And over the you know decades now that you've um, attended COPs and similar similar global summits, uh, are the ones today similar to how they were say in the early nineties? No, they they've changed quite a lot in the early well in the you know decade of the. Um, 1990s mm. the agendas were shorter and mm. less complicated and you could, could actually see your way through to more or less finishing meetings when they were supposed to finish that sounds I don't nice yeah so that that's one thing that's changed the agendas have mm. become more um, lengthy there are now um, as I said six bodies that are meeting uh, to start with there were mm. only three and now you know, we, have, we have more um, and progress used to be able to be made um, during the intercessional periods in a, a much more um, accepted way mm. than it is now mm. it used to be that you could um, <coughs> convene small technical expert meetings that were representative of all the, the negotiating groups. So mm. you could have, say, 40 people in yeah. a room and all interests would be more or less covered. And you could work your way through a, a, a document and, and make progress on it and then bring that back into the formal process. Mm. Mm. Um, on, on a sort of a personal basis, are there any kind of particular moments or experiences that stand out to you as particularly special? I think being being in the plenary in Paris when mm. the gavel came down on the mm. Paris Agreement um, has to stand out. Mm. Um, you know, it's almost like, did that really happen? Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, did we really get there? Yeah. <laughs> After all that time, I remember I was also there, not in the room, but one of the sort of the side overflow rooms sort of watching it on, on the big screen and it was it was surreal for me, but to have spent as you know been working on it for the time that you had in the leading up to it would have been really something. Yeah. Um, so now we're just two weeks away until COP twenty six, uh, and you're heading off to Glasgow shortly as part of the New Zealand delegation. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about New Zealand's priorities and ambitions for the conference and what you're hoping to achieve from New Zealand's perspective. Well, I think it's. Um, I've already mentioned Article 6 mm -hmm. we're, we're really keen to, to get that concluded mm. um, we're also keen to put the finishing touches on the transparency framework which is where parties will be reporting and, and um, holding each other to account for, for what they've put into their NDCs mm. so those are two, two key priorities for New Zealand but of course the, the issues around um, ambition and yeah. keeping 1.5 degrees on the table, climate finance, yeah. or lending our voice to the voice of the Pacific mm -hmm. when when we can. These these things are important to New Zealand as well. Yeah. For the UK, we the UK has four kind of key priorities for the summit. The first on kind of mi mitigation, um, trying to ramp up ambition through more uh, enhanced NDCs from all countries, including New Zealand. Um, helping developing countries adapt, for all countries adapt to, to the climate change that's already occurring. Uh, and you've mentioned finance, securing um, finance from um, wealthier countries to meet the sort of target of at least $100 billion, US dollars per year. 
uh, and also trying to urge collaboration across all sectors and, and parts of society. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson has described the UK's ambition as coal, cash, cars and trees. Um, from a global perspective, sort of stepping away, wh what do you think success would look like at COP26? Success is going to have to touch on all of those issues. Mm. It, it, um, we, we won't have success unless we address the finance issue. Mm. We won't have success unless we address mitigation, um, etc. We won't have success unless we recognise adaptation challenges. Mm. Um, so, no, in, in the end, it, it will be um, a package of interconnected decisions and so on that, that will will make the meeting a success, but mm. it doesn't rest just on one thing. All the pieces of the puzzle matter. Yeah. This has been, I think, a really enlightening conversation for for our listeners. Um, but you know, despite our you know best efforts. Um, these conferences that can take place at a high level and extremely large conference venues in sometimes very far away places. You can't get much further away than the UK from New Zealand. Um, and so I think it can still feel you know, very removed to, to most people in New Zealand. If you could share you know, sort of one message to the public about COPs and these processes and, and why we should care about them, what would that be? What I would say about that is that we're all responsible for, for chain, changing the climate. We're all responsible for doing something about it. And it's important for New Zealand to have, have a voice internationally on these issues because we're bearing, you know, the impacts of climate change on New Zealand are, are not entirely of our own making. Uh, they um, are large a large part is emissions from the rest of the world that are causing the impacts on New Zealand's climate. And if we're not there and having a voice at the table, then our position, our views, our national circumstances aren't necessarily going to be recognised and um, no other, nobody else can represent New Zealand except New Zealand. So, mm. you know, we, we need to do that and it's it's a pretty challenging thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly is challenging. But I guess to, to draw things to a close and perhaps end on a more positive note, um, is there something you could share that gives you cause for hope or optimism when it comes to climate change? Well, what comes to mind is that there are so many people, individuals, and collectively looking at what the solutions might be, what is the technology, what do we need to do, what can we do, how do we change people's behaviour. There's, there's a lot of work going on in that area. And it's not to say that we don't have some of the solutions already available to us, and, and we certainly do, but there will be other technology. Um, read the other day that there's something better than a lithium battery, so, you know bring it on. Um, <laughs> no, th things like this, there are people that are really working at, at this, so that, that gives me hope, and I am an optimist, mm. I, otherwise I probably would have found a new job about 29 years ago. <laughs> and also the other thing is that it is, it's, it's a collective 
thing mm. and and we're all in this together and we're all part of the solution and even though it might not seem like it but we can't actually sit around and wait for other people to do everything for us absolutely well thank you helen i think you you summed it up nicely when we think about cop 26 when i say bring it on <laughs> and i think as uh as the host of cop 26 that one thing that will bring us optimism is having uh, experienced and passionate and optimistic delegates and negotiators like yourself attending there. So I want to wish you all the best uh, for your travels to COP26 and for the negotiations and hopefully we can um, get those outcomes that we need to to make it all a success. So Helen, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti anō.